Hello, and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all of my original listeners, welcome back. To those new to the show, welcome. I am a storytelling historian with a great love for the Plantagenet dynasty, as I am a direct descendant to Geoffrey of Anjou via my paternal line on my grandmother Carter's side. I descend through Diana Skipwith, daughter of Sir Henry Skipwith and Amy Kemp. Diana married Captain Thomas Carter. They immigrated to the Americas in 1650, settling in Barford in Lancaster County, Virginia. So with that said, please like and download the show as it helps other listeners learn about the show. If you wish to support this podcast, there is a link for you to do so, and it would be much appreciated as it would help with costs of maintaining the website www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find the podcast as well as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode. On Sunday, the 24th of January, 1328, Edward met Philippa of Hainault, his bride, at the gates of York. It had been more than a year since he had last seen her, at Valenciennes, but the kind and pretty Philippa was a most welcome sight. She was practically the same age as Edward, probably eighteen months his junior. She was of the same blood, being his second cousin on his mother's side. Most important of all, she was temperamentally his ideal companion. She had a sense of humour, loved romances, and displayed a sympathetic understanding of people. Her wedding present for her husband was an illuminated collection of texts for aspiring rulers, including the Book of Julius Caesar and the Government of Kings, and a book of statutes and music, with an illuminated picture of Edward in his favourite pose, holding a falcon. Altogether, a well-considered gift. Side by side, they rode into the city, with the crowd celebrating in widespread and heartfelt joy at their union. Either the next day, or on Tuesday the 26th, they were married in the cathedral by the Archbishop William Melton, with Bishop Hotham of Ely in attendance, watched by Mortimer and Isabella, and thousands of lords, knights, esquires, priests, and citizens of York. The Hainalters were as fervent in their celebrations as the English. Count William of Hainault, struggling with gout, had accompanied his daughter and his brother, Sir John, bringing a large contingent. Of course, there were tournaments. Philippa watched as Edward fought, with the pennons of his chosen protector, St. George, flying above him. For Edward, the wonderful thing about Philippa was that, for the first time, he had someone totally loyal in whom he could confide. Isabella could read his letters and Mortimer could spy on his conversations, but neither of them could come between him and his wife. She very quickly became his support in his struggles with the leaders of the regime. Although Edward could not reduce Mortimer's authority, he could obstruct his plans. Also with Philippa came a number of young pages and Hainalter servants who owed no allegiance to anyone but her. One, Walter Manny, would prove a lifelong friend to Edward. When Edward's household officers were appointed by Mortimer, and when he had to entrust his secret business to men like John Wyatt, a man who would one day betray him, he needed all the friends he could get. Before the end of the wedding festivities, dark news was received in York. King Charles of France, Isabella's last brother, had died, leaving no heir. Since females were barred from inheriting the French throne, Isabella had no claim herself, but she could pass on her claim to her son. Indeed, with all her brothers dead, if Isabella wanted her dear father's dynasty to continue to occupy the French throne, she had no alternative but to make a claim on behalf of Edward. As far as Edward was concerned, the French claim only added to his problems. In the Parliament which met at York directly after the wedding, it became clear that Mortimer and Isabella were preparing to give up his sovereignty of Scotland. This would alienate his northern barons and lose Edward part of his inheritance. More personally, his grandfather, Edward I, had fought long and hard for control of Scotland. It should not be given up without a fight. To Edward, Scotland symbolised everything that was ignoble about the government exercised in his name. He also knew that unless he made it clear that he personally did not agree to giving up Scotland, a large contingent of English lords would blame him for not standing up to Mortimer. 
Mortimer and Isabella were unassailable. On the 1st of March, letters were issued in Edward's name which outlined the terms of the permanent peace. Edward had to renounce all his claims and those made by his ancestors. The borders of the time of Alexander III, who died in 1286, were to be recognised. All English lordships in Scotland were to become Scottish lordships. All English actions against the Scots at the Papal Curia were to be dropped. Most personal of all these insults to Edward's status was the clause about a royal marriage. One of his sisters would be forced to marry the heir to the Kingdom of Scotland, David, the eldest son of Robert Bruce, a man whom most Englishmen held to be a traitor. To agree publicly with any of these terms would be humiliating. Edward began thinking about how he could make his disagreement publicly known. Edward's quiet planning was given an unexpected boost a few days later. For the first time since the invasion, his mother, Mortimer and Lancaster all left him. On the 2nd of March, he issued a writ urging the sheriffs throughout the kingdom to assist his mother wherever she went on her pilgrimage. On the 5th of March, the next parliament was summoned to meet at Northampton at the end of April. And then they began to depart. Mortimer disappeared off to Wales, probably with Isabella. Lancaster and his kinsman, Thomas Wake, remained with Edward until the 8th of March and left shortly afterwards. Edward was left in the keeping of the bishops of Lincoln and Norwich, Gilbert Talbot, John Maltravers, then steward of the household, William Zouche and John Darcy. This unprecedented departure prompts us to wonder what was going on in March 1328. And we might well wonder, for one of the reasons why Mortimer left court was to attend to his business in secret. We might say that if contemporaries didn't know what he was up to, what hope have we 700 years later? It's like trying to find where a needle was in a long-since-vanished haystack. But the problem is potentially very important. For another of the characters who disappeared from court at this time was the Earl of Kent, Edward's uncle. He was away for the same period as Mortimer and returned to court at the same time as him. This is interesting because these two men seem to have fallen out at this point. They had been close in France in 1325-26 and Kent had married Mortimer's cousin, Margaret Wake, Kent had urged a gift of a manor to be given to Mortimer after the invasion. Mortimer had responded on the 3rd of March 1328, offering Kent some of Hugh Dispenser's old lands. But thereafter, there is no evidence of closeness between them, and later there was great hostility. The reason this is relevant to Edward III is that at some point in 1328, almost certainly before March, Kent discovered that Edward II was still alive. This was the third great worry, along with France and Scotland, that weighed on Edward III's mind in the summer of 1328. In 1327, there had been three attempts to rescue his father from prison. What if it were to happen again? Edward would then be entirely dependent on Mortimer to protect him. But how did Kent know? In 1330, he confessed that a friar had conjured up a devil who had told him. But this was merely a ruse to cover up his true source. This was almost certainly Sir John Pesh, a man of fluctuating loyalty, who returned unexpectedly from abroad in about January 1328. He was the keeper of Corfe Castle, where the old king was being held. Edward, still only fifteen and a half, was under huge pressure when Parliament gathered at Northampton. War with France was being discussed, the independence of Scotland threatened England, and the Earl of Kent's knowledge was potentially the greatest danger of them all. Disempowered by his mother and Mortimer, and separately undermined by his uncle, what could he do but try to manoeuvre himself between their contests and look to his own safety while trusting that others would speak out on his behalf? Lancaster, as head of the Council of Regency, did speak up. But he and Mortimer were so hostile to one another by this stage that Mortimer had no qualms about using Edward's name and authority to threaten his rival. When Mortimer declared outrageously that he spoke for the king and the king's will was that Scotland should be independent, Lancaster declared that this shameful peace was none of his will. Mortimer stood firm, knowing Edward could not oppose him. As everyone was in some way compromised by or afraid of Mortimer, no one else followed Lancaster's lead. Edward was forced to ratify the treaty. Parliament broke up, and Edward had to acknowledge he had lost part of his kingdom. Once more, he had failed to live up to his responsibilities. Once more, he had been publicly humiliated. 
It is easy to dismiss Mortimer's role in 1328 as that of a self-interested dictator. But even Edward would have acknowledged that his adversary was more than that. Mortimer believed he had relieved the country of a tyrant and was now acting in the manner of a benign governor. He had done so before, quite legitimately and successfully, in Ireland in 1317-20. However, now his position was complicated by his illegal appropriation of royal authority. Even if his actions had been enlightened, they would never have been agreeable to Edward. Mortimer's mere existence was a blow to royal authority, for it prevented him from ruling in the proper capacity of a monarch. As a result, the strains on the relationship with his mother and Mortimer were felt most acutely by Edward. After Northampton, Mortimer and Isabella dragged Edward and Philippa to Hereford, there to attend the double wedding of two of Mortimer's many daughters and the post-nuptial tournament. This was another opportunity for Mortimer to spread his largesse and to be seen as rich and powerful. But simply by being there at Mortimer's beck and call was a humiliation for Edward. And so it went on, day after day. From Hereford, the royal party slowly made their way to Mortimer's castle at Ludlow. After two days hawking and jousting, they made their way back south to Worcester. There, they waited for Henry of Lancaster, so Mortimer and Isabella could discuss the war with France. It might have been Edward's inheritance they were discussing, but it was Mortimer, Isabella and Lancaster who were doing the talking. Faced with such humiliations, we might wonder why Edward did not speak out more often against Mortimer and Isabella. He probably did, but his opinions rarely reached the distant chroniclers. Also, he was still young, only fifteen, and relatively insecure. He did not have the circle of determined supporters of later years. His contemporaries were relatively young. We must also remember that he was fond of his mother, and as for Mortimer, he did have his uses. At least he acted as a protection against Lancaster. At Worcester, it became clear to Edward that while Lancaster might argue with Mortimer about France and Scotland, what Lancaster most wanted was to control the king. Lancaster realised that Mortimer had outwitted him. He had to diminish or destroy Mortimer if he wished to take his place. Mortimer's and Lancaster's arguments at Worcester were met with an outburst by Edward himself. In defiance of his two overmighty magnates, Edward tried to impose his own will, to resist the demands on him to attend the marriage of his sister Joan with the son of Robert Bruce. Mortimer and Isabella in turn countered that these matters had already been agreed at Northampton, but this time, Edward did not back down. People had already cruelly renamed her Joan Makepeace, as if she were just a diplomatic tool. He refused to attend the wedding. He would stay in England while they went north. It was argued that this would damage the value of the alliance, but in Edward's eyes, there was no alliance, for there was no peace. Seeing that there was nothing they could do to force him to come with them, his mother and Mortimer had no choice but to leave him behind. In August 1328, Edward's brother, John, turned 12 years of age. Like Philippa, he was a natural ally against the growing oppression of Mortimer. Having been raised as a prince under the guardianship of a king, John could see the situation entirely from Edward's point of view. He was now being ruled by a baron. This led to what was probably Edward's next stand. When Mortimer demanded that at the forthcoming Salisbury Parliament he be given the hugely significant title of Earl of March, Edward countered by pushing his brother forward to receive the rich earldom of Cornwall. By this stage, relations between Mortimer and Lancaster, and between both men and Edward, had reached a new low. On the 7th of September, Lancaster had threatened Mortimer and the king with an army at Barlings Abbey near Lincoln. Edward was clearly shocked. A London rebellion was being planned also, and Edward was again dependent on Mortimer to send men to eliminate opposition from that quarter. Lancaster issued a whole string of accusations against Mortimer. As the date for the Salisbury Parliament approached, it looked as if only pro-Mortimer supporters would attend. Lancaster's faction were preparing not for discussion, but for war. That Edward was personally in danger was not in doubt. At the end of September, Lancaster sent an armed force to capture him in East Anglia. It was only Edward's speedy reaction, forcing the court to travel 180 miles westward in six days towards the relative safety of Mortimer and Isabella at Gloucester, which saved him from falling into Lancaster's hands. If that had happened, Mortimer and Isabella would have lost their royal power and Lancaster would have gained it. Civil war would have ensued. 
Lancaster failed to arrive at the Salisbury Parliament. The agenda was thus Mortimer's. No statutes were enrolled. The main items of business were the civil disturbances, the likelihood of war and Mortimer's title. On the last day of October, Edward ceremonially strapped the sword onto his mother's lover and exchanged the kiss of peace with him, and in so doing created him Earl of March. It must have been a far greater pleasure for him to do the same for his young brother, John, and the 23-year-old James Butler, whom he created Earl of Ormond. Mortimer's title only infuriated Lancaster more. Throughout the latter part of 1328, it looked as though a great battle would be fought to establish who had the right to rule in Edward's name. At Winchester, Lancaster was persuaded to retreat at the very hour that Mortimer's vanguard arrived in the city. Skirmishes took place, but the two armies narrowly avoided one another. In London, Mortimer harangued the citizens who had dared to take Lancaster's side. Finally, at the end of December, Mortimer declared war on Lancaster in Edward's name. The young king could not have known what to think, as his mother also donned armour and took part in a sudden overnight charge which resulted in Lancaster's capitulation near Bedford. The year 1328 had seen Edward being fought over by Mortimer and Lancaster, like a wounded gazelle being trapped between two lions. Victory for Mortimer hardly made Edward sleep any easier. The real danger for the gazelle begins when one lion has defeated the other and may safely consume its prey. Edward's uncles, the earls of Norfolk and Kent, had initially sided with Lancaster. They had deserted him at the last rather than take arms against the king. Like Edward himself, they saw no victory in Lancaster's defeat. Kent in particular wanted to see Mortimer removed from power. That was why he had sided with Lancaster in the first place and in his opinion Edward was too young and inexperienced to throw off the irons of Mortimer's authority. In spring 1329, Kent took matters into his own hands. He planned a mission overseas to see Pope John XXII and began his arrangements for the rescue of Edward II. Edward was also planning an overseas trip, or rather Mortimer and Isabella were planning one for him. Isabella had been persuaded to relinquish her claim to the French throne on Edward's behalf, largely because the risk of civil war made an overseas expedition impossible. Instead, she had been persuaded reluctantly to recognise Edward's cousin, Philip de Valois, as king. But this rankled with her, as indeed it did with Edward himself. When Philip had demanded that Edward come to France to do homage for his French possessions, Isabella retorted that the son of a king would never do homage to the son of a mere count. This infuriated Philip, he confiscated the revenues of Gascony and sent envoys to demand that Edward do homage as initially stated. Edward could see his French possessions slipping from his grasp as quickly as his Scottish ones. Mortimer agreed that he should do what was required of him and perform homage. After a flurry of diplomatic missions, Edward appointed his younger brother John custodian of the realm during his absence. He said farewell to him, his mother and Mortimer at Dover at the end of May. Edward had many men with him, including Hugh Turpington and John Maltravers, Mortimer's most loyal knights. He also had close friends in William Montague, Thomas West, Geoffrey Le Scrope, Pancio de Controne and Robert Ufford. Montague, now aged about 27, had been at court since his father's death in 1319, when he had become a royal ward. Thus he had known Edward since the age of six. Thomas West was one of Montague's retainers, Ufford was thirty years old and had known Edward as long as Montague. The Italian de Controne was Edward's personal physician. Le Scrope was the prominent lawyer who had assisted in Edward's household many years earlier. With the possible exception of Le Scrope, all these friends of Edward's had seen their hopes for the future threatened by Mortimer. To them, Mortimer represented the traumas of the old reign, and they knew Edward needed their help. He had already lost his rights to Scotland and was on the verge of surrendering his rights to France. His royal power had been held from him, his father held prisoner, his uncle Kent alienated from court. We do not know when Edward began to confide in Montague and Ufford, but we might assume from their presence on this trip that they were there at Edward's insistence, and that Edward was already closer to them than he was to Mortimer's henchmen. Edward and his men landed at Wisson on the 26th of May after a two-day crossing. They made their way via Crecy and Montreuil to Amiens, where, on the 6th of June, in the choir of the cathedral, Edward swore homage to Philip. 
Something about the ceremony, however, was not right. Various writers later postulated that Edward had not put his hands between Philip's when swearing the oath. Others thought that he had not sworn fealty and thus refused to serve Philip in war. One thought Philip was planning to arrest Edward after the ceremony. Another story was that Isabella summoned him to return immediately. Whatever the truth of what happened, Edward left France in a hurry. He did not beg leave of the French king, he simply left. Within six days, he was back on English soil. Two days later, he was at Canterbury. Why did Edward depart so suddenly? So many problems were billowing like smoke out of England that it is difficult to know which was the most important. One is the possibility that Isabella was pregnant with Mortimer's child. This would have threatened Isabella especially, and it may be that she and Mortimer immediately sought Edward's acquiescence, if not his approval. However, it is unlikely that Isabella would have upset a diplomatic agreement for the sake of not telling Edward such news for a few more days. It is more probable that something directly threatened Edward as well as Isabella and Mortimer. This is very unlikely to have been a French plot to arrest him. The message would have been poorly directed if it had reached him having travelled via England. Also, on his return to England, Edward authorised the negotiations for a marriage between his brother John and a daughter of the King of France. The most likely explanation is that this was the point at which Mortimer and Isabella discovered the nature of Kent's plot to rescue Edward II. Historians have traditionally assumed Edward II had been dead for the last two years. If any acknowledged that this was not certain, they still assumed that Edward II had disappeared from English politics altogether and that he may as well have been dead. But it has become clear that this was not the case. Edward II's shadow haunted Edward III far more than has hitherto been realised. Edward was a nervous young man, beset by troubles, and the knowledge that his father was alive, and that he himself, through his royal position, had helped create the lie of his father's death, troubled him mightily. In later years, it became usual for members of the royal family to be buried with their faces exposed, precisely to avoid the confusion which now beset Edward and his contemporaries. The news that Kent had gone to the Pope to inform him that Edward II was still alive must have alarmed Edward as much as it did Mortimer and Isabella. Kent had been planning his trip for several months, since at least April if not earlier. But he was still in England in May and seems not to have left until early June. It seems that Isabella may have ordered Edward to hurry home in the fear that Kent, after his support for Lancaster, might himself have sought to kidnap Edward while in France, possibly to stage his own coup d'etat. Kent was no fool, despite often being referred to as one, and he too could have used custody of the young king to steal power in England, just like Mortimer or Lancaster. All we know for certain is that as Edward was swearing homage to King Philip on the 6th of June, his uncle was crossing or about to cross the Channel with a view to taking action against Mortimer and Isabella's regime by replacing Edward on the throne with his secretly imprisoned father. The situation would have been made clear to Edward on his arrival back in England. If we are right in thinking that Isabella was pregnant at this time, Edward would have been forced to grapple with that fact also. Problem after problem seemed to loom before him, and Mortimer, the architect of so many of these problems, seemed more confident than ever. That autumn, he held a great feast at his newly rebuilt castle of Wigmore, at which he, Mortimer, played the part of King Arthur in the king's presence. The symbolism was unambiguous. Mortimer was playing the king himself in front of Edward, the real king. This was more than mere play-acting. Although not yet seventeen, Edward realised he had to take steps to reclaim power. He decided that his first move must be to convince the Pope of his integrity. A week after the tournament at Wigmore, he sent William Montague to Avignon. The mission was secret. Ostensibly, Montague was to seek Otto, Lord of Kike, whom Edward said he wished to employ. But Mortimer was quick. On learning of Montague's trip, he instructed his own man, Sir Bartholomew Burgersh, to accompany Montague. Undaunted, Montague did what Edward had bade him and saw Pope John XXII. On the journey, he may have been able to persuade Burgersh to change allegiance, at least tacitly, for he was able to see the Pope and tell him of the plight in which Edward found himself and how the country was being run against his wishes by Mortimer and Isabella. 
Pope John told Montague to return to England and let Edward send him a secret letter bearing a sign or cipher by which he could discern which letters to him came with Edward's blessing and which did not. Sending Montague to Avignon meant Edward was temporarily without his most trusted friend, but others were beginning to rally to his cause. Most important of these was Richard Berry, Edward's old tutor whom he had managed to keep with him. Berry had been a cofferer in 1327 and keeper of Edward's wardrobe from August 1328. On the 24th of September, he was raised to the position of keeper of the Privy Seal. This was crucial. It meant that one of Edward's trusted servants had custody of the means by which his personal instructions could be authenticated. It marked a distinct setback for Mortimer and Isabella, and the best-informed chronicles begin to note that at this time Mortimer was beginning to perceive Edward as a threat. In particular, when the Pope asked Montague to arrange the means by which he could distinguish between Edward's and Mortimer's written intentions, Berry wrote a letter which Edward himself signed with the words Peter Sancte, Holy Father. This is today the earliest surviving writing in the hand of an English monarch. Everyone was playing a deadly game. Mortimer could see his influence waning, but as the basis for his confidence diminished, Edward saw him growing more arrogant and more dangerous. The child which may have been born to Mortimer and Isabella at Kenilworth in December 1329 would have made nothing easier for any of them. Isabella too was vulnerable. Lancaster, only superficially forgiven for his rebellion, was out of the country on a diplomatic mission, possibly coordinating activity from France. To make matters more dangerous still, rumours about Lancaster's return or Kent's return with an army of mercenaries were circulating. On the 7th of December 1329, Mortimer and Isabella issued a warrant to arrest anyone spreading such rumours. Feelings were running high, and at the height of these feelings, Kent returned. The man with the knowledge and power to blow the whole situation sky high was back in England. No one knew quite what to expect at the beginning of 1330. Edward now learned that Philippa was pregnant and expecting their first child. Mortimer, fully aware of the danger to them all, was plotting. So too was Kent. They all came together for the coronation of Queen Philippa at Westminster Abbey on the 18th of February. The records do not show how tense the situation was. The only documents which shed any light on that day are those which show what the Queen was wearing. The fantastic ostentation is worth noting, for it contrasts so completely with the antagonisms at court. It was almost as if Edward was ordering Philippa to spend as much as she possibly could in order to emphasise his right to empty the royal purse. For her journey from the Tower of London to Westminster on the eve of her coronation, Philippa wore a tunic comprising nine and a half ells of green velvet cloth. For the cape she wore on the same occasion, three of the very best red cloths of gold spinet, along with a selection of miniver furs. The next day, the day of her coronation, she wore in the morning a robe of seven cloths of green gold spinet of the very best quality, a fur hood and fur cap. Then she changed and wore a lined tunic with a lined mantle of red and green samite for her anointing and coronation. This took place before the high altar of Westminster Abbey, Philippa being crowned by the new Archbishop of Canterbury, Simon Mepham. She changed again for lunch and wore a tunic and a mantle of the very best purple cloth of gold spinet and a hood of miniver fur. For supper, she changed again and wore a robe of the very best gold spinet, a miniver fur and a miniver hood and fur cape. Finally, after her coronation, she dressed in a robe of the very best cloth of gold and yet more furs, this time of ermine. According to the Annalist of St. Paul's, there was a great procession, and the Queen rode between Edward's two uncles, Kent and Norfolk, who dressed as pages and rode on palfreys with her to the Abbey. One wonders at the pleasantries which passed, the conversations which bubbled over the deep anxiety felt by Kent, Edward, Philippa, Mortimer and Isabella. In fact, the situation was worse than any member of the royal family could have guessed, including Kent. Mortimer now had the means to bring the crisis to a head. He had managed to obtain from his agent, John Deverill at Corfe Castle, written proof of the Earl of Kent's plot to release Edward II and dethrone Edward III. The incriminating letter had been written by Mortimer's own cousin, Margaret Wake, Kent's wife. Mortimer had to respond. His response would be cold and severe. 
he would have to betray the continued existence of the old king. But that perhaps was not such a bad thing for him, as he would thereby undermine Edward's authority. Either way, he could not delay. Kent's plot was about to spring Edward II from Corf. The Archbishop of York had even written to the Mayor of London to arrange for the delivery of clothes for the old king after his release. The rumours were rife, incriminating letters were being passed from hand to hand. Mortimer must have considered this might be his only chance to save himself and Isabella, and perhaps to stave off a civil war between his own faction, fighting in the name of Edward III, and those who, like Kent, wished to see Edward II restored. At Winchester, on the 13th of March, Mortimer made his move. In the hall of the castle, in the king's presence, and with the lords all assembled, he announced that he had arrested the king's uncle, the Earl of Kent, on a charge of treason. The stakes could not have been higher. Calculations had piled on calculations, risks on risks. Edward probably trusted Mortimer to keep his father's survival secret, even at this stage, even though many of those attending Parliament knew the truth. If the ex-king's survival became an open matter for debate, then he, Edward, could be accused of breaking the terms of Magna Carta and keeping a man wrongly imprisoned. His uncles had, in fact, already accused him of exactly that crime. If his father were to be released and restored, and such was the opposition to Mortimer now that many thought this an appropriate course of action, Edward would find himself dethroned. Mortimer would be hanged and courted, Isabella divorced and sent to a nunnery. Edward himself might even be arrested for treason. He might very easily find himself in Kent's place. All the key personalities had much to lose, and for once Mortimer was not an exception. What Edward was probably only just beginning to understand was how far the information about his father had gone. Kent had been very successful in attracting support. The Pope had promised unlimited funds. The Archbishop of York had offered £5,000. Sir Ingleram Berengar had discussed the plan with Kent several times, the last in Kent's room above the chapel at Arundel Castle. Sir Fulk Fitzwarren said it would be the noblest deed ever accomplished. Lord Beaumont was deeply implicated, so too was Sir Thomas Rosalyn. Kent's brother-in-law, Lord Thomas Wake, another of Mortimer's cousin, was an accomplice. So were Lady Vesey, the Scottish Earl of Mar, and Sir John Petch. Add to these Lord Zouche, the Bishop of London and the Earl of Lancaster, and things began to look very grave for Edward indeed. Mortimer proceeded undaunted. He himself acted as the prosecutor, in a court specially arranged for the purpose of trying Kent. He made no attempt to cover up the secret of the ex-king's survival and custody. Sir Edmund, Earl of Kent, you should understand that it behoves us to say, and principally unto our liege lord Sir Edward, King of England, whom Almighty God save and keep, that you are his deadly enemy and a traitor and also a common enemy unto the realm, and that you have been about many a day to make privily deliverance of Sir Edward, sometime King of England, your brother, who was put down out of his royalty by common assent of all the lords of England and in impairing of our lord the king's estate and also of his realm." If Kent had harboured an illusion that rescuing a wrongly imprisoned kinsman was in some way not a crime, then it was shattered instantly. He falteringly replied, In truth, sir, understand well that I never assented to the impairment of the state of our lord the king, nor of his crown, and that I put myself to be tried before my peers. But he must have known that no plea could save him from Mortimer's judgment. And Edward too must have realised that Mortimer was going to push all the way there would be no pretending that Edward's father was dead. If Edward himself openly denied it, then Mortimer could denounce him there and then and reveal all. The whole royal family was on trial. Edward kept silent. Mortimer continued. He held up a letter which, he explained, had been handed to his agent at Corf Castle. It bore a seal. To Kent he showed the letter and said, Sir Edmund, do you not know this letter that you sent to Sir John Deverell? The Earl's seal was clearly visible, and he agreed it was, but it was of no value, he protested, as he had sent many letters. Perhaps Kent genuinely did not know what this particular letter said, but Mortimer knew. He began to read the letter aloud. Worshipful and dear brother, I pray heartily that you are of good comfort, for I shall ordain for you that you shall soon come out of prison and be delivered of that disease in which you find yourself. 
Your lordship should know that I have the assent of almost all the great lords of England, with all their apparel, that is to say, with armour and with treasure without limit, in order to maintain and help you in your quarrel, so you shall be king again as you were before. There was no denying this evidence. Edward could see that his uncle was damned. Worse, he himself was demonstrably guilty of keeping his father hidden and of having given orders for and attended a fake royal funeral. Could he plead ignorance? Would anyone listen if he did? His confidence had been broken and broken again, so that many of the men now present suspected that he himself may have led Kent into this trap. And here, almost crowing, was Mortimer, who was setting his father and uncle against him. Still, Edward kept silent. The sentence was read out. Kent was told that, The tenor of this your letter is that you were on the point of rescuing that worshipful knight Sir Edward, sometime King of England, your brother, and to help him become king again and to govern his people as he was wont to do beforehand, thus impairing the state of our liege lord, the present king. The will of this court is that you shall lose both life and limb, and that your heirs shall be disinherited for evermore, save the grace of our lord the king. The sentence resounded around the hall. Edward heard the words, Save the grace of our lord the king, and knew he could no longer keep silent. The moment had come to decide. Kent, having heard that he was to die, in tears began to plead for his life. He admitted he had not considered the king in all his plotting, and he wholly submitted to him. He promised, if the king so desired, that he would walk through the streets of Winchester, or even all the way to London barefoot, with a rope around his neck in atonement. The man was terrified and humiliated, and begged Edward, his nephew, for his life. Save the grace of our lord the king. Edward's kingship had crumbled into disaster. Everything, loyalty, affection, kinship, pity, suggested that he should save his terrified uncle, who had acted only out of love for his brother. But in Mortimer's open assertion that Edward II was still alive, Edward could see that he himself was under threat. Mortimer claimed descent from Arthur, the line which it had been prophesied would one day rule all England and Wales. Mortimer had presented his sons as earls, he had claimed the premier earldom in the kingdom, he had defeated his only rival Lancaster and was speaking and acting as if he, not Edward, was king. He had already once put himself forward as a possible monarch. This trial was not about the Earl of Kent, it was about Mortimer's power. Mortimer was the enemy here, not Kent. The prosecutor was the guilty party. But there was nothing Edward could do to stop him. Nor would he ever be able to stop him if men like his uncle saw his father's restoration as the best way to prevent Mortimer from achieving the throne. Edward realised he had to demonstrate to all those who knew that his father was still alive that he would never give up his right to be king. With a pitiful heart, he understood what he had to do. He sentenced his uncle to death. On the 19th of March, 1330, the Earl of Kent was led out of prison, his hands bound. He was to be beheaded. Bravely, the captain of the guard declared that his man had refused to carry out the sentence. This embarrassed Mortimer, but the captain was steadfast, and so were his men. Mortimer and those who had gathered for the execution waited. Eventually, Mortimer ordered the jails to be searched for a man prepared to do his bidding, and a latrine cleaner, himself sentenced to death for murder, agreed to kill the earl in return for his life. He was brought out to confront his royal victim. So the blow was wielded by a criminal, and thus Edward sacrificed his uncle. The fall of the axe meant one thing was certain. Edward would avenge his uncle's death. From that moment on, there would be no drawing back from his determination to put an end to Mortimer's rule. Mortimer was not unaware of the changed situation, but he was too involved to be able to extricate himself. How could he? He had kept Edward II alive, perhaps out of consideration for Isabella's wishes, perhaps out of his own desire to control the young king, perhaps both. And now he was guilty of having kept an anointed king hidden illegally for more than two years. If he withdrew from court now, Edward III would surely come after him and seek revenge. Besides, he would lose Isabella if he withdrew or went into exile, and he may well have been devoted to her emotionally, even beyond the limits of his excessive ambition. From Mortimer's point of view, all he could do was keep his nerve, to use his wits to keep in control for as long as possible. 
From the day of Kent's execution, Mortimer had exactly seven months of freedom left. In that time, he certainly used his wits. He rallied troops, he appropriated lands and wealth, and he did all he could to keep Edward in his place. A plot arranged by Richard Fitzalan, heir to the earldom of Arundel, was discovered by Mortimer and foiled. But Mortimer's authority was diminishing by the day. Magnificent he may have been, feared he certainly was, but the young generation of knights at court were of a mind to fight for their king. Long before the 19th of October, Edward knew whom he could trust. William Montague had returned from Avignon, and he was willing to take action. It didn't matter how many troops Mortimer inspected in his show of strength. The revolution would not be an invasion, it would come from within. The only question for these young knights of St. George was how to strike the dragon and avoid being scorched in its dying fire. The politeness continued. Edward had learnt how to play the games of diplomacy. As late as the 28th of July, Edward included Mortimer amongst those to whom he gave elaborate Turkish clothes for the summer season, along with his mother, his wife and his sister, Eleanor. They were still at Woodstock then, where Edward learned he had become a father. Philippa had given birth to a son, Edward, the future Black Prince, on the 15th of June. Edward was ecstatic and gave the valet who brought him the news 40 marks yearly for life. Maybe this was why his mood was light enough to give Mortimer presents of Turkish cloth that summer. Maybe these were the last attempts to cover up the plots being hatched. Either way, it is much easier to give gifts to a mortal enemy knowing you have marked him down to die. The third day of the Parliament held at Nottingham Castle was the 19th of October. Tempers had fled in the days before. The hatred and fear on all sides had become obvious. Mortimer had arrived to find that Lancaster had been given rooms at the castle. He flew into a rage and demanded to know who had dared house so great an enemy of the Queen so close to her. On his orders, the Earl was directed to be removed and lodged at a merchant's house in the town. Mortimer also gave orders that the men of the garrison were to obey his orders and not the King's. This was utterly outrageous. Just as shocking was his confiscation of the keys to the castle, which he handed to Isabella. The King's friends were near to taking action. They hesitated at this last violent outburst from Mortimer, not quite knowing what he was planning. Some urged Edward to accuse Mortimer openly of murdering Edward II and to arrest him. That way, even if the king's father were to appear in public, he could be declared an imposter and set aside. But Edward was reluctant to follow this path. It held too many pitfalls. Besides, he now knew that his secret information was being passed directly to Mortimer by John Wyatt. At first Montague, and then Humphrey and William Bohan, Ralph Stafford, Robert Ufford, and John Neville of Hornby were each led before Mortimer and interrogated. Edward realised that a more immediate and complete strategy was required. At this point, William Eland changed the course of history. Eland was the man who told the plotters about the secret passage which led from the riverbank up into the Queen's apartments. It seems that he told Edward first, and the king sent him to Montague with orders to give him the same information. This is the most likely sequence of events given the wording of Montague's Charter of Reward. Edward clearly states that he revealed his own secret design for the arrest of Mortimer and his accomplices to Montague, and that Montague was strenuous in carrying out the plan. Sir Thomas Gray, writing twenty years later, tells us that the king instructed Montague to order Eland on pain of death to leave a postern gate to the park open which suggests that until that moment there was some doubt over Elan's loyalty. This postern may have been at the bottom or the top of the secret passage, or possibly both. The chronicle known as The Brute relates a conversation between Montague and Eland in which Montague asked Eland for the keys of the castle that night, and Eland pointed out that Isabella kept them under her pillow, but told him about the secret passage. Edward saw his opportunity to seize Mortimer without alerting his troops. We cannot know the precise movements of each person that night, but some things are clear. The lower entrance to the passage was left unlocked by Eland or on his instructions, and perhaps an upper door was unlocked by one of Edward's accomplices within the castle. Eland himself was with Montague. From the inclusion of certain non-combatants among those rewarded for assisting in the coup, especially Pancio de Controne and Robert Wyville, it would appear that these men also helped in the operation, very probably assisting in the entry of the armed men. 
As de Controne was a physician, it's possible that his role was to support Edward's alibi of ill health, as Edward would not have wanted to be with Mortimer and Isabella when the fight to arrest them broke out. According to Sir Thomas Gray, after ascending the stairs from the tunnel, Montague and his accomplices were undetected, as it was murk night. The followers of the nobles had left the castle and returned to their lodgings in the town. Isabella, Mortimer, his sons Geoffrey and Edmund Mortimer, Simon Berryford, Sir Hugh Turpington and Bishop Burgesh were in the hall of the Queen's lodgings, discussing what action was to be taken against the plotters. Various other esquires and men-at-arms stood guard, but they were few. Most of Mortimer's men were billeted in an outer ward of the castle, at a considerable distance, or on watch on the outer walls. As steward of the household, it was Turpington's responsibility to make sure that the servants and guards were attending to their business. He was probably in the course of a routine check about the castle when he saw the armed group advancing up the stairs to the Queen's apartments. Had he withdrawn at that moment, he might have saved himself. But Turpington had fought alongside Mortimer since at least 1310, and his response was unquestioning and immediate. Turpington's dying shout alerted everyone within the hall and in the next few moments, as Montague, Neville and the other assailants rushed to the door of the hall, the household esquires ran to defend the entry. In the struggle which followed, several esquires were injured and two were killed, Richard Crombeck and Richard Monmouth. As they fought, Mortimer left the hall and went into the Queen's chamber to seize his sword. Bishop Burgess followed him, not to fight, but to try and escape. But Montague had enough men to capitalise on the surprise of his attack, Within a short while, Mortimer had been disarmed and his sons Geoffrey and Edmund had been arrested, along with Simon Berryford. Isabella, inviolable as the king's mother, simply screamed despairingly at the door of the chamber into the dark corridor beyond, suspecting Edward to be present. All the prisoners were marched down to the basement of the queen's apartment and down the spiral staircase into the secret passage, down to the riverbank and through the park. They were taken to Leicester, such was Edward's fear of Mortimer that he rode with the men who removed him and ordered them to hang him as soon as they reached Leicester. But Lancaster, who had also ridden with Edward and his knights, urged him to use parliamentary approval for Mortimer's execution. A show trial was needed, if only to reinforce the idea that Edward II was dead and that Mortimer had killed him. Lancaster, who had now become reconciled to Edward and clearly must have apologised for his earlier behaviour, persuaded the king. Mortimer was taken to the Tower of London. Just as the execution of his uncle had been a pivotal moment in Edward's development as a man, so now the destruction of Mortimer's authority was a pivotal moment in his development as a king. Having accompanied Mortimer all the way to London, Edward ordered him, his son Geoffrey Mortimer and Simon Berryford, to be walled up in one of the rooms. The doors and windows were accordingly filled in by a mason. Six royal sergeants-at-arms under the command of two knights of the royal household, Robert Walkfair and Arnold Duraforti, were stationed around the room to make sure Mortimer did not repeat his 1323 escape. There, in the darkness, Mortimer waited for a month before he was sentenced. Perhaps Edward ordered this in reflection of the conditions in which his father had been held. On this, we can only speculate. But one aspect of the incarceration is very interesting. It was not just any room into which Mortimer was sealed. It was the one next to Edward's own. 4. Absolute Royalty On the 26th of November 1330, Edward had Mortimer dragged before Parliament, bound and gagged. He sentenced him to death for 14 specific crimes, most of which were prefaced by the accusation that Mortimer had accroached the royal power. It has generally been assumed that this marks the moment when Edward took absolute control of his kingdom. And it is true that with Mortimer's downfall, the major obstacle to Edward's direct rule was removed. But many challenges remained. Before he could recognise his ambitions, Edward would have to wait until he was older, more trusted as a leader, and more confident. First, there was the problem of what to do with the old regime, its victims as well as its supporters. There was the issue of the lands and treasure which Mortimer and his friends had amassed, including the fortune gathered by Isabella. What should Edward do with the people they had obstructed or disempowered, and the estates of those they had executed, such as Hugh Dispenser and the Earl of Kent? Disinherited lords could be reinstated, as with the Earl of Kent's son, but what about those whom Mortimer had locked up for good reason? What about Mortimer's family and the family of his supporters? 
And what about their actions before 1326? One of Mortimer's Irish tenants, Hugh Lacey, came to court seeking redress for accusations of treason brought against him in 1317, when Mortimer had been a highly respected king's lieutenant of Ireland. Such grievances had to be treated on their individual circumstances. It would have been unwise simply to revoke all of Mortimer's actions. Edward proceeded cautiously. On the way south from Nottingham, just four days after the arrests, he ordered Mortimer's treasure to be handed over to Richard Berry, along with that of Queen Isabella. Mortimer's lands were confiscated. Isabella voluntarily surrendered her vast estates at the end of November. The Pope was very quick to get involved, writing to Edward immediately requesting that he deal leniently with Isabella and Mortimer. In fact, so seriously did the Pope take the matter that he sent two copies of his letter on behalf of Isabella to Edward, in case one should be lost. The Pope wrote at the same time to Queen Philippa, the Earl of Lancaster, William Montague and the Bishop of Winchester, exhorting them to use their influence to help Isabella, Mortimer and the Bishop of Lincoln. Such intentions were not lost on Edward, who knew he would need the Pope's support in the years to come. Isabella was placed temporarily under house arrest. The Bishop of Lincoln was left unmolested. The real problem facing Edward was how to proceed against those who were the closest intimates of Mortimer the handful of men who knew what had happened to Edward II. This was a matter of the greatest delicacy. The strategy he adopted was brilliant. Mortimer had concocted the death of Edward II so Edward III would maintain that his father really was dead and that he had been murdered on Mortimer's orders. In this way, although he had no idea where his father was, he could set aside any attempts to restore him during his own minority, just as Mortimer had done. He also could restore the son of the Earl of Kent to his rightful inheritance and pardon his poor dead uncle, which he did. But this strategy did carry one great difficulty. It raised the question of how Edward should treat the men who thus were implicated in a fictitious royal murder. Obviously, he would have to take action against them. Fortunately, all the ringleaders fled except one. Lord Barclay remained. Defiantly, he maintained in Parliament that the ex-king was not dead. Edward showed great awareness and intelligence in his response. He quickly took the initiative and came to an understanding with Barclay. The official announcement of the death would be maintained, but Barclay himself would not be held guilty of the fictitious death. In this context, Mortimer was the least of Edward's worries. He was sentenced to be dragged to the gallows at Tyburn, then hanged. On the day of his execution, he was made to wear the black tunic he had worn at Edward II's funeral. Isabella's movements were restricted for several months. Then she received her liberty and the income she had held before the ascendancy of the dispensers, the substantial sum of £3,000 per year. Edward waited a week after the parliamentary trials before ordering the arrest of Maltravers for arranging Kent's death and the arrests of the other men involved in the supposed murder of Edward II. They had already fled, of course, but Edward had to be seen to be taking action against the supposed killers of his father. Moreover, he wanted one of Mortimer's supporters in particular brought to him. This was Thomas Gurney, the man who had originally brought him the news of his father's death, knowing it was false. Gurney was arrested in Spain and died three years later of a sudden illness on the way back to England. As for the other members of the Mortimer faction, the dictator's widow, Joan, eventually received her lands back with a full recompense for her lost income. Lord Barclay was notionally held on the charge of appointing the man who was supposed to have killed Edward II, but he was neither incarcerated nor deprived of his lands or revenues. In this way, Edward coped with a serious dilemma. On the one hand, he had to be seen to take firm action against Mortimer's adherence. On the other, he had to be careful lest he be accused of creating false crimes in order to discredit men for the sake of his own reputation, especially in the case of Lord Barclay. Only two men... Mortimer himself and his henchman Simon Bereford were executed as a result of the coup. Even Geoffrey, Mortimer's son who was walled up with his father in the tower, was released without charge. Mortimer's eldest son, Edmund, was allowed to inherit some of his family estates within a few months of his father's execution. Edward never even pursued Sir John Maltravers, the other man responsible for the ex-king's security, along with Lord Barclay. Not only would it have been unwise for Edward to persecute those who had supported Mortimer, it would have served no purpose. Mortimer had surrounded himself with the cleverest and most able men of his generation. 
Indeed, virtually all the prominent men at court in the last year of Mortimer's ascendancy were retained by Edward III in the first year of his. We know this by assessing who witnessed royal charters in the period before and after the coup of the 19th of October 1330. Bishop Burgersh of Lincoln, who spent more time at court in 1330 than any other bishop, was retained by Edward III even though he was no longer Chancellor. The Pope wrote commending his skills to Edward, who acknowledged in his reply that Burgersh had more good in him than all the other bishops. This is remarkable in view of Burgersh being Mortimer's closest friend and advisor. Nor was he the only Mortimer ally to win Edward's approval. Even Oliver Ingham attested a charter in 1331, despite being a Mortimer agent, and two years later he was appointed Seneschal of Aquitaine. Leaving aside the steward of the household, who attested charters by virtue of his office, all but one of the fifteen men who had witnessed more than three charters in 1330, under Mortimer's period of influence, performed the same courtly function in 1331, the exception being Geoffrey Mortimer. Edward restricted his reforms to replacing the treasurer and chancellor with men of his own choosing. The men he selected for these posts were William Melton, Archbishop of York, and John Stratford, Bishop of Winchester, respectively. All this points to another significant feature of Edward's character, forgiveness. Edward was not averse to executing his enemies, as later events would show, but if a man could prove useful to him, he did not let past enmity stand in the way of reconciliation. Already, by the 19th of October 1330, Lancaster, the rebel of 1328, had been restored to favour. More surprisingly, Geoffrey Mortimer was permitted to live quietly on his estates in France. Although Maltravers was sentenced to death for his part in procuring the death of the Earl of Kent, he too was allowed to live untroubled in Flanders. He was allowed to return to England secretly for a conference with Edward's advisers in 1335, was employed by Edward in Flanders and Ireland not long after that, and eventually restored to his estates and lordship. Bartholomew Burgersh, who had shadowed Montague's mission to the Pope, was appointed Seneschal of Ponthieu. Such an ability to forgive meant Edward did not permanently alienate key magnates and prelates from court. He did not disable his government by vindictiveness upon the disempowered ministers, nor did he create new enemies. In fact, so much did he sympathise with the judgement of those who had supported Mortimer that a year later, in January 1332, he announced that a grant made before October 1330 was not questionable merely on the grounds that it was made in the time of evil counsellors. Mortimer had not been a bad administrator. He had committed only one unforgivable sin in Edward's eyes. He had appropriated Edward's royal power. It is particularly unfortunate for the biographer that the sorts of documents which survive from the 14th century, financial accounts, administrative and legal records, royal writs and chronicles written by clerks with one eye on posterity and the other on morality, rarely give an impression of how much fun was had at court. The weight of evidence is always on the side of business, whether the kings or gods. Nevertheless, we can be confident that Edward was ecstatic at his success in capturing Mortimer, and as soon as the man was dead, he reveled in his position. As Sir Thomas Gray put it, So this king led a gay life in jousts and tournaments and entertaining ladies. Edward certainly enjoyed the jousts and tournaments which Gray mentioned. We can point to a whole gamut of tournaments, games, staged battles, promenades and masked events provided by Edward, rather like a Roman emperor providing games for the entertainment of his citizens. These events, whether private, for a few dozen nobles and knights, or public, for the citizens of London, all helped Edward recreate the cult of kingship. They were dramatic events too, with the emphasis on spectacle. For the games at Guildford on the 1st and 6th of January 1331, Edward ordered canvas and Spanish wool to be purchased to make the hair and hides of men and deer, perhaps to be used in mock hunts. For the same games, he also ordered two banners and four pennons to be made, presumably for the two armies which would compete in the tournament, and ten dozen false faces complete with beards both for knights and squires. Masks became a common element of Edward's games. So too were mock animals and mythical beasts. The costumes of merchants, friars, devils, dragons, angels and women never ceased to be popular, and were still being invented for Edward's entertainment twenty years later. What is often overlooked about all this display is that it was not just an occasional happening, it was a regular occurrence. 
To get an idea of just how regular, we have to examine Edward's accounts for references to payments for armour and costumes. Of course, many festivities have left little or no trace, when only a small amount of armour was purchased specially. Nevertheless, it's reasonable to estimate that Edward attended some sort of games on a monthly basis in the summer and on the major feast days in winter, so a total of about ten or eleven tournaments per year, each lasting between two and four days. In between these were the preparations for the events, and of course the events themselves were in many respects training exercises for real battles and duels. Edward was encouraging his subjects to live the romantic chivalric life. For Philippa and her ladies at court, this took the form of a massive display of wealth through their rich and varied appearance, an extravagance in practically everything they did. For Edward's knights, it took the form of regular displays of prowess in the joust, and dressing up and acting archetypal roles from popular culture and imagination. Edward was leading the royal family in a recreation of a semi-legendary realm. His purpose was a demonstration of absolute royalty. It was the biggest pro-royal propaganda statement since his grandfather Edward I had constructed a whole series of castles in the newly conquered north of Wales, including one, Carnarvon, modelled on Constantinople, capital of the Eastern Roman Empire. If Foissard's chronicle with its tournaments and feasts, romantic deeds and chivalric honour seems far-fetched, it is not because it was trying to misrepresent Edward's court, it is because it was trying to represent it faithfully. Absolute royalty in 1331 harked back to one figure above all others, King Arthur. The Arthurian legends had, for a number of years, offered various kings the model for a band of knights who were indomitable and who would win fame, love and virtue. In his old age, Edward I had tried to create just such a band to 